Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Rob Mass, a senior advisor in the Global Compliance Division. And I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Zeke is an oncologist and is considered one of the world's leading bioethicists. He has been a major voice in public policy debates in the United States around the ethics of healthcare. Zeke served as a special healthcare advisor during the Obama administration, and some of you may know. He was one of the leading architects of the Affordable Care Act. So Zeke, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So let's start with your family. Your two younger brothers are Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel and a Hollywood-based talent agent, Ari Emanuel. I'm sure we could spend a lot of time discussing all of the fun you had in your early years, but I guess I just wanted to ask generally, what was it like growing up with those two personalities and how did that influence you? Uh, I was pretty violent, uh, uh, you know, just a lot of competition, uh, but also a lot of camaraderie. Um, we would, uh, uh, between 1967 and 1970, we spent every summer uh, in Israel, and basically it was the three of us. We'd go to the beach, we'd go looking for trouble and mischief, uh, and it was a lot of just the three of us hanging out together and doing what brothers do. Um, creating havoc and then fighting with each other and then go doing something again together. Um, and you all ended up in three very, very different fields. Yes. Was that it's obvious? It's the force field, yes. We, we could not be in the same place doing the same things. It would just not be tolerable. And when we do overlap, it's always uh, uh, a little conflictual and a little uh, 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 camaraderie. So. Uh, I've, I've also read a little bit about your parents who uh, were extraordinary people, and I'd like you to just describe a little bit about who they were, what they did, and how they influenced you. Well, my father is a uh, classic uh, immigrant. He was born in Israel. Right after the war, he uh, was educated as a doctor in uh, Switzerland, um, and then came to the United States for internship and residency. Um, and he, as I like to say, he came with a fancy Parker pen uh, and about uh, $23 in his pocket, and that was it. And uh, he slept at the hospital, ate at the hospital, um, and just uh, worked like a maniac. And my mother was, uh, you know, stayed at home with us and, you know, basically drove us. Uh, and like every good Jewish mother, nothing was good enough. Uh, and I do think that there's, uh, you know, it, it both creates a certain kind of neuroses, but also creates a certain kind of unrelenting drive. And I think she succeeded in that. So um, after that time at home, you went to Harvard Medical School and did something very unusual. You simultaneously took a medical degree and did a PhD in political philosophy. How did that come about? Why did you do those two fields? Um, well, I tried to not to become a doctor, uh, and I obviously failed at that. Um, and I think it was predetermined. Um, my father's an immigrant. He is a physician. I'm the oldest born, and I happen to be very good at science. And not being a doctor was literally impossible. I remember coming home my junior year in college and saying I wanted to do philosophy. This was 78, 77, 78. And my father was like, no. 
uh, you know, this is, you're going to be a doctor. And I was like, well, I'd like to become a journalist. No. Um, so I inevitably went to Harvard Medical School. Um, and fortunately, in my second year, um, I had the opportunity to teach in the Harvard major called Sox Stud Social Studies, um, the sophomore uh, sequence, which uh, uh, was a great, great opportunity. And I learned that that's what I really liked. I was good at teaching in the classroom, and I like wrestling with ideas. So I said, well, I can combine my medicine and my sort of uh, limited abilities in philosophy, and I think I can contribute to the field that way. So after three years of medical school, I stopped, basically stopped medical school and went and did a PhD um, in political philosophy related to how political values influence medical decision-making like end-of-life care, allocation of resources, and things like that. So right from the beginning as a doctor, you were focused on public policy and ethics. Yeah, I thought that's where I could make a difference and, and would have a uh, push the field in the right direction. When, when I started in end-of-life care in like 1984, uh, there's almost no one doing it. Uh, when we began our empirical research in like 87, there were probably four groups in the whole country doing anything related to end-of-life care. And actually, the dean of uh, students at Harvard Medical School, when I said I'm going over across the river to do this PhD, basically said, we're not going to stop you. Um, but uh, this is a career ender because medicine doesn't deal with end-of-life care. It's not what we're about. We're about extending life. Um, and I was like, well, that may be true, but this is the way I have to do it. And uh, I think I was right and he was wrong, uh, really, about what was important in medicine. You have brought a, a really um, uh, sort of wide-ranging focus on medical ethics. You ask questions that are other people wouldn't ask. And I want to start with two of the uncomfortable truths that you have stated about the way healthcare is provided here and I assume everywhere else in the world that many people may not realize. Two of them. Let me start with the first one. You challenge the view that more medical care is necessarily better than less medical care. Maybe we should want less healthcare. And you say, in a quote from one of your articles, we are in a perfect storm of overutilization. And you blame some of that on the doctors and the system, and you blame a lot of it on us, all of us as patients. Explain. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know, just to give a really concrete example that everyone here can resonate to, um, uh, I constantly get from friends, brothers, and others, you know, I've got a sore throat. You know, I'm feeling terrible, I've got a fear, blah, blah, blah. Should I go to the doctor and get antibiotics? Absolutely the worst thing to do, the wrong thing to do, and doctors who prescribe it, the wrong thing to do. You know, it's a classic case of we want more and more and more, and first of all, it's a virus, it's not bacterial, antibiotics are not gonna help. Second, it breeds antibiotic resistance, which is also terrible, it wastes money, in all sorts of ways, the antibiotics, the doctor visit, et cetera. It's a terrible way to go. And we've also now learned, of course, that a lot of those bacteria, they're really important and they're good for you. They're not bad for you, they're not your enemy. Being in a sterile environment is also pretty crappy, um, especially for kids growing up, right? We want them to be exposed to bacteria. One of the reasons we have these increase in allergies, according to the hygiene, uh, the, um, hygiene hypothesis is we're too clean. Uh, we need to go back to lots more dirt in our lives. And I think that's a very good example of wanting more and more. Another one for men of our age, and soon most of you men, 
right, is the whole prostate and prostatectomy and prostate cancer issue, right? Huge push, you know, uh, test, 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 do the PSA, um, and uh, get your prostate removed. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, lots of people going the other way, realizing this is a stupid idea. It's most likely we will die with prostate cancer. It's one of these diseases that you live long enough, you're going to get it as a male, um, but it's not going to kill you. Uh, everything else will intervene, um, and uh, it's got a lot of serious consequences, incontinence, impotence, um, and uh, I have worked diligently diligently my whole life not to get a PSA. I've had three. <laughs> and I'm not a wallflower, but, you know, it's like, can't, can't prevent those docs from getting it. And how much of that medicine, this overuse, uh, creates healthcare problems, and how much of it is just a cost issue, that it's just putting too much burden on the system? Well, it's both those things. We shouldn't, it's not either or. Okay. It is definitely putting unnecessary costs, uh, you know, about, Actually, now it's about a decade ago, the National Academy of Medicine estimated that that's, I don't know, uh, unnecessary care is uh, at least $150 billion. That was in 2009 dollars. It's well, well higher than that today. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, once you do a test, you guys are probably really good in the statistics, right? Uh, one in 20 chance that something comes off positive, just random, because that's our cutoffs for most of these things. Well, even if you don't have anything wrong, it might turn out to be positive, then we chase it, we do a biopsy, we do an additional MRI scan, and you know, things happen. As I like to say, there's no medical procedure, no medical procedure that doesn't have some adverse consequence. Even the simple things like drawing the blood have adverse consequences, and you do it on enough people, a lot of people have adverse consequences. When, I, when you, I first heard about you, it was in the context of an article you wrote right around the time that the Affordable Care Act was under consideration. And it was the article was entitled, Principles for the Allocation of Scarce Medical Interventions. I don't know how many of you remember, there, were all that, there was a lot of talk at the time about this new Obamacare was going to create death panels. And he, he wrote an article which I thought should have been required reading for the entire country about how rationing medical care? You think that that's going to start with, with the Affordable Care Act? Medical care is rationed all the time, and it must be rationed. Explain that. So there are two kinds of uh, rationing, you might say. One is absolute scarcity leading to rationing, and that's when we don't, simply don't have enough of something and you have to choose between people. We do that with organs for transplantation. We don't have enough. Some people will get it, other people won't, and tragically, people will die. Uh, similarly, if we ever have a flu pandemic, not if, but when we have a flu pandemic, um, we're not going to have enough vaccine, we're not going to have enough respirators, we're not going to have enough hospital beds. We're just going to have to choose between people. Those are cases, we did this when penicillin was first available in the war, and we gave it to GIs with syphilis instead of GIs who got infected wounds. We did it when we first got a way of doing dialysis. It's inevitable um, that you're going to have to choose between people. And then there is relative scarcity where it's a matter of money, how much you're going to allocate to this versus how much you're going to allocate to that. Everything has opportunity costs. You spend money here, you can't spend money there. We know what the envelope is in the United States. It's $20 trillion. That's a total GDP for the country. We can't spend more than that. That's what we generate. Yes, we can increase our productivity. 
It does seem, at, at least at the moment, that we have a limit on how much our GDP is going to grow. We spend more money in something, call it medicine, we're going to spend less. And we've seen this over the last, uh, uh, certainly 15 years, very starkly, as healthcare costs go up, states you know, can't raise taxes very easily, um, especially during the recession and after the recession, and they have to balance their budget by law. Well, what happens? Well, Medicaid goes up, payment to state workers for their health insurance goes up, and what gets cut? Typically higher education, which is why tuition at public universities has gone way high, and primary and secondary education that states heavily support. Those are the two biggest elements in their budget. And those go down. And so the trade-off, you know, we haven't put it out on the table, but the trade-off is we're going to increase Medicaid, Medicaid and state worker healthcare spending. We're going to decrease education spending. And that trade-off many states have made over time. Is that a good trade-off? Well, we're spending what now north of $3.5 trillion a year on healthcare. We can spend less. Um, we know that. There's no structural reason we can't spend less. It's a way of how we deliver the care. And the consequence of spending so much, at least in part, is lower spending on education. And we also know lower spending on wages. Um, because if premiums didn't go up so much, uh, firms would spend more money in cash wages. Um, and I do think, actually, one of the reasons wages have gone up in the last few years, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, is in part because healthcare costs have actually moderated. So it sounds like uh, you're not happy with the fairness and the, the transparency and the resulting fairness of the distribution between the amounts that we're spending uh, as a society on healthcare versus some of these other wellness uh, aspects of living a flourishing life. Right, that's that's fair. Very, a very good way of putting okay. it. Okay, yeah. what about the, um, about the more traditional medical things you were talking about, like um, uh, uh, scarce organs, uh, scarce doctors? Do uh, you think we, we allocate those fairly? Uh, no, I've been actually quite critical. So the reason we wrote the article that you quoted in The Lancet is uh, very critical of the allocation scheme for kidneys, livers, uh, and such. So on the kidney scheme, uh, as uh, you know, part of what uh, really matters is how long are you on the waiting list. Uh, and so uh, first it's a kind of first come, first serve. You get on the waiting list, you, you, you move up. Um, that is one of the worst ways. It may be fine for allocating you know, iPhones when they newly come out, but it is, <laughs> or, or concert tickets, but it is not good for organs. Why should waiting time, and by the way, when you do waiting time, we know that there are certain groups that are going to win that race. Those groups turn out to be rich people. We've gamed the system. We know how to play the system, uh, and we'll play the system better in healthcare. Doctors will put us on the waiting list earlier and things like that. So, I, I disagree with that. Um, similarly, on livers, the traditional uh, uh, main allocation principle is called the MELD principle, and it's three uh, physiological scores that basically sick is first. Mm -hmm. So the, the sicker you are, the higher up you move. And that is also a terrible way to allocate resources. For one thing, um, it doesn't take account of prognosis. How well will you live with the organ? And we would not want to do sick people who might be compromised. We, 
should actually want to do people who are going to live a long time with the organ. Um, and really what the MELD score does is to minimize the number of people who die while waiting for the organ. That is not what we're trying to maximize. The other thing that it ends up doing is sometimes liver failure uh, leads to kidney failure. So then we end up transplanting a liver and a kidney to the same person, which is also a bad violation of ethical principles. You could have saved two people. Instead, now you're saving one person with two organs. Not a good principle. So, uh, um, so let's talk about the ACA. How, how successful do you think it is? Um, do you think you, just how successful was it? So first of all, 22 million, give or take some, uh, have gotten health coverage. Uh, that's pretty fantastic uh, in this country. Um, and I think it should have been more. Lots of reasons it's not more. We didn't get to expand Medicaid the way we wanted because of the Supreme Court ruling. Um, if we expanded Medicaid in Texas, Florida, Georgia, and the other 13 states, we'd have at least 3.5 million more people covered, which is you know, another 1% in this country. Uh, the exchanges, obviously, the bad branding when you open up your exchanges and the website doesn't work. Um, that was a mistake of the way the whole process was managed at the White House and HHS. And we, you know, I was one of those people who said, we need a czar. This is not the kind of thing government does well. This is e-commerce. We need someone with skills in e-commerce or someone who can manage people in e-commerce. We did a terrible job of that, and it, by the way, wasn't that complicated. How do we know it wasn't that complicated? Because when we brought in a team to fix it, they fixed it in three months. Couldn't have been that complicated. You had three years to put this damn thing in place. It really burns me that we screwed it up so badly. Um, nonetheless, 22 million or so people got coverage, and the Republicans in the last two years have done their damnedest to try to undermine people getting coverage, whether it's you know getting rid of the mandate, shortening the open enrollment period, shortening the advertising, shortening the navigate, or eliminating most of the navigation. You know, can you destroy exchanges and people getting coverage? The answer is yes, of course you can. Um, uh, it's, as a, a, a dear friend who worked on, on the whole process with me said, you know, buying health insurance, if you had to buy it yourself, or, you know, it's a grudge buy. You're spending money and you're hoping you're never gonna use it. We don't like spending money that way. All of us get it because it's basically, our companies give it to us and we don't have to go out and exert any energy yeah. really to do it. But if you have to go out and exert energy, it's gonna be hard and you have to get over that potential energy barrier. So on the coverage, we could have done a better job. And on the cost, we've done an amazing, remarkable yeah, job. This is very important because I hear I see articles periodically that the costs of uh, health insurance are now rising. What's the truth? That is true, but not as much as they would have. One month, one month after passage of the Affordable Care Act, the Office of the Actuary, the official scorekeeper in Washington on health care costs, came out with the projections of how much things would cost. Expanding coverage, health care inflation, all mixed in, and said that in 2017, we would be spending $4.1 trillion on healthcare, 20.2% of GDP. And if you actually look at 2017, how much did we actually spend? What was the actual case? We spent $3.5 trillion, 17.9% of GDP. That's a savings for those of you guys who aren't doing the math that fast, $650 billion in one year. And if you take the wedge from 2010 to 2017, it's $2.3 trillion that has been saved. So yes, healthcare cost is going up, but as my dear friend, and uh, uh, now I guess it's your competitor at Lazard, Peter Orzeg says is, we did bend the cost curve. Did we bend it as much as we wanted? 
No. But have we bent it? Absolutely. And there's lots of things uh, that people will say, oh, there's more consumerism, we've got prices down, different insurance, all of that. Yes? Would we have done any of that without the Affordable Care Act? Uh, not likely. So the Affordable Care Act made all of that, um, enabled it all, and set the premise for all of that. So if you could wave your magic wand and improve the bill today, what would improve you Improve the bill or, no, or improve, improve what, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? Well, look, um, it is a sad fact, and there's no company that you guys invested in. All right, we're going to go through a major reorganization, and then we're going to walk away for nine years and not pass any remediation, figure out problems that have developed. I mean, that's insane, insane. And that's what's happened because of gridlock in Washington. We passed the ACA and we haven't had the multiple chances to revise it until now, which is, again, one thing is like, wow, it performed so much better, even though we couldn't have fixed all the little problems that we know have come about. So um, I think one of the things that, we're hap that is happening today is people are quite fearful, given what's happened over the last two years, that the gains they've got, the pre-existing condition exclusion, the fact that they can get health insurance in the exchanges, and by the way, this last year, premiums in the exchanges went down 1.5%, another sign of cost control. Um, that's why I think people are supporting Medicare for all. Anything happens, Medicare's there. It's been there for 50 years. I know it's solid. I know the government will stand behind it. And I think that's why people are really gravitating to Medicare for all. I'm not a big advocate of Medicare for all. I've written why I think it's unlikely to pass, and, and there are policy reasons that I, but I do think that there is a structure, and I worked at the Center for American Progress and, and helped them a little bit on this. You know, there is this Medicare for all America proposal, which is keep traditional Medicare, keep the Medicare Advantage plan, that's the managed care plans run by private insurance that more seniors seem to like, a third of them now are enrolled in it, and that number's gonna go up to 40% in the next few years and keep traditional employer-sponsored insurance. Um, that way you don't get the ire of the insurance companies. You've simplified the system. You've folded Medicaid and the exchanges into Medicare or uh, the Medicare Advantage plans. Um, it simplifies the system um, and I think is a better platform for going forward. It also allows more uniform yeah. policies for cost control to be implemented. Um, so I think that is probably the direction the country is likely to go. Let me switch uh, gears a little bit. Uh, I want to focus on drug pricing, <laughs> which I, th I think we've, you believe is going to be one of the key issues Absolutely. in Washington over the next uh, uh, several years. We've seen a lot of attention on it. Issues can raise from the 500% rise in the price of EpiPens, which was such big news uh, two years ago, to the extraordinary price tags on the latest a piece of technology which can be $100,000 a year. You can have a drug treatment that's $100,000, $200,000, $500,000 a year or even more. Um, you wrote recently in an article in The Atlantic, quote, there are many reasons to question the widely held notion that high drug prices and innovative research are inextricably linked. Are drug prices too high? Uh, uh, well, that uh, undoubtedly yes. The, the simple answer, yes. So on a per capita basis in the United States, we spend $1,443 roughly per person for drugs. You go to the next highest country, that's Switzerland, it's $939. You go to Germany, it's 667. And it's not because we get more prescriptions in the United States per capita. 
Um, on average, our prices are 56% higher than European and others. They're just way high. I mean, the, the simple way for, and you guys understand this, is we give drug companies monopoly rights. We give them monopoly rights through patents and FDA marketing exclusivity. And then we basically say, set the prices. Well, what is a monopolist going to do when they are given rights to set the prices? They're just going to raise the prices until they're, you get to the tipping point of profits. Um, and uh, every other country says, yes, we're going to give you a monopoly, but we're also going to regulate your drug prices. They do it in many different ways. And by the way, not all of them do it through the government. Some of them do it through private organizations in Germany, for example. Um, and we're going to eventually, what did, what did Churchill say? You know, we try all the other options, and then we get to the right solution. We're going to get to the right solution. We're going to have to regulate drug prices. I think, as I, I did mention to you before, I think it's going to happen early in 2021. And uh, um, I think it, it'll be a good thing for the country. And, and you actually said you, you think you're, you're hopeful about some sort of uh, regulation of drug prices in 2021. Because of your conversations in Washington, you were actually called in by the Trump administration to talk to them about health care. Yes. And what did you find about Republicans and well, Democrats I, on drugs? I mean, the president, even in the state, this year, State of the Union talked about drug prices being too high. Republicans, Mark Meadows of the uh, Freedom Caucus, you know, drug prices are too high. It's a bipartisan issue. When uh, in uh, December of 2009 and early in, uh, I mean, December of uh, uh, 2016 and then early in 2017, I did meet with uh, President Trump and I said, look, this is a bipartisan issue. You can get prices under control, focus on healthcare costs, focus on reducing healthcare costs and lead with drug prices. It's bipartisan and you will go down in history as a big hero for that. You can see how much my advice was worth to him. <laughs> I mean, it, it still is a big issue. It, there is bipartisan support. Um, and I think you're getting a growing consensus, even in the drug companies. They won't say this in public, but uh, look, we do have to regulate drug prices. It has to be informed by value-based pricing, which is basically how much health benefit, uh, uh, the prices related to the health benefit produced. It also has to be uh, looked at in terms of total affordability to the system. We can't have shocks like we had with the hepatitis C drug that you can see in the health inflation numbers, one drug driving up healthcare inflation. We can't do that. And so we have to be able to uh, bring those principles together and moderate uh, drug prices. This year, 2019, we are likely to have the first million dollar drug treatment. And I think that'll send a shockwave through the system. And I think um, it's going to galvanize people. We, we just can't spend a million dollars for a drug treatment. Ex explain, to, explain to us why you think a million dollars is so high. Why shouldn't we be able to, why can't we afford the best treatment for everybody? Oh, we can afford the best treatment for everyone, not at prices set by drug companies. That's a very different thing. Afford is possible, set by drug companies is not possible. So here's my thinking, um, and follow me uh, for a few steps. Number one, the average lifetime earnings for Americans with a BA um, degree, and I will remind you that only 34% of American adults have a BA degree. The average lifetime earnings, uh, we don't have clicker technology. I would ask you, I asked my students in a poll, it's $2.1 million. Lifetime earnings. Now, you cannot, I mean, it's, you cannot charge the lifetime earnings of the average BA uh, for a drug. You just can't. Um, it burns out the whole system. So 
that would be an unethical price. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what portion of total lifetime earnings should go to drugs, the whole pot of drugs that someone might use? And I said, well, if you take the average lifetime earnings, you obviously have to back out basic necessities, clothing, uh, rent, food, transportation, the internet, telecom. Then you're left with what I would say is disposable income, right? You've got basic necessities, raising a child, right? Uh, feeding a child, sending a child to college. And then you've got a pot of basic necessities. If you back out from that 2.1, 2.2 million dollars, all of the necessities, including raising one child and sending that child to a public university, right? You're left with disposable income that looks something like $600,000, $650,000 for an entire lifetime. So then you ask yourself, well, how much of that $650,000 ought to go to healthcare? And of what goes to healthcare, how much ought to go to drugs? I allow you to noodle on it. I'll tell you my answer. My answer, meh, somewhere in the range of 11% uh, ought to go to drugs. Uh, no more than that, and that takes you down to about $75,000. Now, maybe you want to say, oh, I don't want that much entertainment. I don't like that much travel. I don't like riding bicycles. I don't like going to the gym. I don't like doing this other stuff. You know, okay, great, maybe you're willing to spend more. But I think as a society, we have to think how much of the disposable income available to society after we've covered the basic necessities, including raising children and sending them to college, should we spend on drugs? That's the question we have to ask. I've given an answer, but I think all of us have to think about that. And one of the things, I, and I think as a society we do good to, is um, we need to you know, play a game. I put those in quotes. We need to actually think, okay, we've got a pot of money for our lifetime. How are we gonna allocate that? What's important to us, what's not important? And I think once you go through that exercise, uh, and it's an exercise I think a lot about, um, we're, we are going to change how we spend things, right? Yeah. For me and, and my family, education was really important. We overspent, maybe overspent by some people's estimation, on education. I have a few too many degrees after my name. All of my daughters have few too many degrees after their name. Um, but that was a real important priority to us. Other things were not a priority. My kids never went to sports games, never ever went to a live sports event unless they got those tickets for free. Um, I think my do middle daughter went to one. I don't think my eldest daughter's ever been to a professional sports event. Just not important to us, right? They went to live plays, but they didn't have a TV. So, I mean, we all have to do that. And once you do that, I think you say, all right, well, how much are we really willing to spend on drugs? Then we put that money, and one of the things you're gonna find out is million-dollar drugs just aren't on that list. Uh, best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received um, make a lot of mistakes. Life is a long, and you don't learn that much from your successes. You learn, I've made lots and lots of mistakes in my life. Learn from your mistakes. I will say one other thing. I am uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and all of you know that Benjamin Franklin was our founder. Um, we like to say that, although there is no course at the University of Pennsylvania on Benjamin Franklin. Go figure. Um, but if you read about Benjamin Franklin, probably the most brilliant American ever born on our soil. He was a brilliant politician, he was a brilliant inventor, a brilliant journalist, um, a brilliant scientist. His favorite word was ingenuity. Highest praise of any person he could give is ingenuity. And I think one of the keys to longevity and really keeping your mind going is curiosity. And I would say that Ari, my brother, kept emphasizing that to me. He says, you know, 
that guy's really curious. And it was a phrase of very high praise. And I think being curious, not just about what you do, but about the world, what is motivating other people, how are they solving problems, I think curiosity is really important. So I don't know if that's the best advice I got, right. but I do think that uh, I would offer you stay curious, become curious, be curious. I'll just wrap it up here, Zeke. That was uh, really fabulous, and I think uh, you really left us with a lot of very interesting ideas uh, on a whole variety of subjects. So I think we should all thank Dr. Zeke Emanuel for spending. Thank time. you. This podcast was recorded on March 26, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.